Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Before we get started this evening, we will take a few moments uh, for silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And that just simply means that we admit or acknowledge our sin to the Lord uh, in silent prayer. And after a few moments, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege that we have to come together this evening just to study your word, to be reminded of that which you've put in your word to motivate us, encourage us, and strengthen us as we face all of the challenges of life that we keep our eyes on the end game and we live today in light of eternity. Father, we are thankful we have you to come to in times of difficulty and challenges. And Father, one that uh, comes to mind right now is praying for Jim Myers as he's um, uh, got a torn meniscus and having a difficult, painful time just as they left to go down to Brazil on the missions trip. And we pray that you would comfort him and that the the treatment that he's received down there will be be adequate and he will be able to fulfill uh, all of the things that he hoped to do and accomplish on this trip. Father, we also are thankful for the pre-trib conference this last week and how well that went and how it appears that everybody was able to travel there and home safely and that there was no uh, flu outbreak or colds outbreak or anything that I know of. And and so, Father, uh, we're just thankful for that. And we're thankful we can come together and study your word tonight and ask that you guide and direct our thinking as we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start tonight just a little bit, a quick overview for y'all about the uh, pre-trib conference that was this last week. The pre-trib conference started in 1991, so this is like the 32nd uh, pre-trib conference. And though it started physically and really got going in the early 90s, uh, in the late 80s when Tommy Ice and I would get together at his house in Austin or my house in Irving, Texas, Uh, we would talk about, wouldn't it be great if we could have a think tank where scholars could come together and uh, present papers and arguments because dispensationalism is under such attack. And that was the theme of this year's uh, conference was answering the critics. And so there were some, uh, some of the papers and presentations might not be to your taste because uh, some of them are really targeting Um, more of an academic. They're just great for a pastor, just great information, great to have people doing that kind of a research. But it might be a little esoteric. It might seem that way if you haven't uh, really gotten into the depths of some things. Uh, Andy Wood started off at uh, Tuesday morning. By the way, you can go to the website, which is pre-trib.org, pre-trib.org. And is that link still on the front page there, Barb? And there's a link on right in the center. There's a paragraph about the conference and a link to the papers. And so you can download the papers or the PowerPoint or keynote presentations and look at those. Uh, eventually, the videos will be available. Uh, Andy talked on the 
critique of the pre-wrath rapture, which was a view that was invented by an extremely wealthy man uh, in the 70s and then got some traction when he finally convinced someone who was a scholar to go along with him. And this is really the three-quarters rapture view of the tribulation. There's the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, and then they came up with this. And Andy did an excellent job uh, showing why that could not be biblical. Probably, arguably, the best presentation, I think, was Randy Price's on the temple. Uh, How can dispensationalists believe in a literal fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple? And so he deals with a lot of different factors related to Ezekiel's temple, but he also deals at, towards the end with this whole issue of what about these sacrifices that Ezekiel talks about and how does that relate to the fact that Christ has, has fulfilled uh, the plan of salvation for us. And so that's very important to understand that. And I have taught the same material um, many times, so it will not be something unfamiliar to you. Uh, Jordan Ballard, who I did not know, and this is my nap time, uh, did the case for pre-trib rapture of the church, so I'll be listening to that later. Mike Vlock, who is a professor at Shepherd Theological Seminary, and both he and Randy and Andy and myself are all on the board of, di- of directors for the pre-trib rapture study group. Uh, Mike Vlock talked about hermeneutics of non-dispensationalism, and um, uh, Dave, um, Dave Munson made the comment, he said, I've really never heard anybody say any of those things. And most of you haven't, but it's great for scholars. But what he did a lot of was provide statements that may shock you that are made by evangelicals who are really pro-Palestinians. They're called, instead of Christian Zionists, they're called Christian Palestinianists. And they believe, they have allegorized the interpretation of the Old Old Testament passages in many ways. And Mike did a fabulous job. He's an excellent scholar and did a fabulous job going through where their ideas come from and how they develop based on their their hermeneutics. And that was was very good. Then we had a banquet on uh, Monday night, uh, and the speaker was Jeff Kinley. We went on, and uh, the next day, J.B. Hickson uh, talked about the uh, spirit of false prophet, the rise of global technocracy. Now, I did not listen to that. I was busy sitting in my room on the phone for an hour and 45 minutes with KLM trying to get all of the airline stuff taken care of for the missions trip. Jim Myers and I are going on to Poland and Romania in May if our, both of our knees hold up. Lee Brainer did a great job, at least from my perspective, as he is a good scholar on this, and he's gone through a lot of the early church fathers, uh, Irenaeus and uh, the Didache, some of those early writings, and did a lot of good homework for me, too much for me to put into my notes in teaching church history, but there'll be information there where he shows that Many of these early church fathers held to a view of the pre-trib rapture. Irenaeus was one of the most significant. Uh, he was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John the, John, uh, John the Apostle. And uh, he had um, 
uh, there's a section which is interesting. You wouldn't know this because I've read through a lot of Irenaeus over the years, but I'd never had caught this because you just have your English translation. But he dug down into the Greek translation because there's an asterisk in there where there's a couple of pages that are untranslated. And in those pages, it's clear he's got a pre-trip rapture view. (laughs) So, And that typically happens. And what a lot of people don't understand, we have translated maybe less than 30% of of early church fathers, that there's maybe as much as 70% of the writings and teachings in the early church that are still in Greek and Latin and have never been translated. Uh, Olivier Melnick, who I hope to bring here maybe in February, uh, is a French, French Jew. His parents were Holocaust survivors. And he is a, he works with uh, Chosen People Ministries. And he wrote on the norm, taught on the normalization of anti-Semitism. And this was arguably the most moving and significant of the presentations because of what's happening today. And it was just outstanding. That's sort of his niche, is dealing with issues related to anti-Semitism. And um, he's got a French background. He lived in Washington State for a while. And after he was finished with his penance, he came to the Promised Land and lives just east of Dallas now. Then uh, Jesse Randolph did a paper on uh, exegetical pastoral insights from the prophecies in Hosea. And then there was a current events on a Thursday night, uh, Tuesday night. Uh, then there was a paper with Dave Reagan of Lamb and Lion Ministries on my pilgrimage to a premillennial viewpoint because he came out of a Church of Christ background, uh, which was Amil, and he was taught that you don't pray the Lord's Prayer, which says thy kingdom come because we're in the kingdom. As an amillennialist, you're in the present form, spiritual form of the kingdom now. And so just his, how he grew, so that's very good. He's got great content. And then there was a panel discussion at the end with uh, Randy Price, J.B. Hickson, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Tim Sigler, who's the new director of Ariel Ministries. Arnold is stepping back to write as long as God gives him the ability to write. And so the ministry is being turned over to uh, uh, Tim Sigler. So I got a chance to meet him at the conference. But that was it. So you can go to pre-trib.org. You can download the papers, and eventually these videos and audio will be up there on the website, and Barb, Barb will see to that. So tonight what we're going to be looking at in our study of Philippians because of the reference to the day of Christ in our passage is a review of the significance of that. Now this is correlated to what we studied on Sunday morning when we talked about uh, inheritance and dealing with the passages that give a list of sins and then conclude by saying, Uh, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we went through a lot of that material related to the judgment seat of Christ and rewards, but not the material I'm covering now. I knew this would happen where they were coming along at the same time. So I'm giving complementary material in the Philippian study to what we did in the Ephesian study on, uh, on Tuesday morning. And um, I mean, on Sunday morning. 
And one of the things that I thought would be kind of interesting, I just happened to, my eyes fall on this this morning when I was at my desk, but one of the things I did over Thanksgiving weekend is that after my dad died, I took about maybe 30 boxes of stuff out of their house that's been cluttering up my study for the last 10 years. A year and a half ago, I got rid of about half of them, had to go through all of them, a lot of photos. But the other probably 14 or 15 that remained were a lot of 35-millimeter slides, maybe eight or nine, 10,000 that I had to go through, along with some other material. And I was splitting some stuff up with my cousin, and I took that up to him in Dallas. But one of the things I discovered was a report card, my first report card, I think, unless there was a report card in kindergarten, but my mother saved this. We were living in Toronto, Ontario, for a couple of years. My dad was put on loan to Tennessee, I mean to a Trans-Canada Pipeline for two years, and so I was in the first grade. It was the fall of 1958 at the uh, Harrison Road Elementary School, and I just got a big chuckle out of reading this that when um, I looked at the grades... I'm not going to go through all of them. None of them are impressive, but they're quite ironic. So in the first section was on your language reading and language skills and comprehension skills. So in oral reading, I got a C plus. In comprehension, I got a C plus. Then in language skills, I got a C and in writing, I got a C. The irony was in number work, I got a B. <laughs> Y'all know me. I can't add two numbers together and get the same answer three times in a row. And then she put brackets outside of those, those language skills and said, not very good. So it's probably a good thing. See, there's hope for everybody See, I wasn't saved yet. I got saved eight months later, and look what happened. <laughs> There's hope. Just because you start off it's kind of slow doesn't mean you're going to end up slow. So, But it, what matters is how we end up, and that's a great thing because one day we're all going to get a report card. And it's not going to be somebody who might not be so competent as my first-grade teacher. It's going to be by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be our report card on our life. So that's uh, what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. So we're looking at this uh, in terms of what we've studied in Philippians 2, the last uh, couple of lessons. So I need to review because for some reason, because of schedules like Thanksgiving and travel and other things, we've had a Philippian study maybe once every two or three weeks on Thursday night. But that's that's going to level out now. So we've lost that train of thought. So I'm going to give you a little review. Introductory paragraph in the main body of Philippians begins with Philippians 1.27 and goes down to Philippians 4.9. That's the main body of the, of the epistle. The material that comes below before 127 and the material that comes after it would be the introduction and the conclusion. And it's in the introduction and conclusion, as we've studied, that their major themes are set forth. And in the body is the development of those, of those major 
of, of those major themes. Yes, I was correct. Philippians 4, 9 is the conclusion of the main body. So what happens is there's a key statement at the, in Philippians 1, 27, where Paul is saying, only let the way that you live your life work, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's this Greek word, polytuma, poly for city, as we've studied. And so you lived a good citizenship. Well, Ro- the people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. So this really, this, this was like saying, walk worthy of your, uh, of your calling in Christ. But it was set in a cultural way that would have uh, caught their attention. And so that is the emphasis. That's what we're talking about, how we live worthy. And we live worthy because of what is said in the introduction about the day of Christ, that one day we're going to be evaluated, and what is said again in our passage in Philippians 2.16 about the day of Christ. We have to live today in light of eternity. Philippians uh, 1.27 says that we're to live our life worthy of the gospel, that for the purpose that we may stand fast in one spirit. So we studied about what the Bible said about standing fast, that standing fast or standing firm is done by means of the Lord. It is The spiritual life is always energized by God. It is not our effort, our energy to grow. It is a supernatural way of life that is um, uh, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So we read in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. That's the same prepositional phrase that you have with by the Spirit, that are translated as by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. So that's important. It is the Lord through the Holy Spirit that enables us and strengthens us to stand fast. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. How well we do at standing fast is part of the evaluation that will come at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Within our paragraph that we're studying, uh, the purpose in Philippians chapter 2.15, which started off that we are to, um, that it is God who works in us uh, both to will and to produce for in terms of his good pleasure and to do all things without complaining and disputing. And the purpose for that is that we may become har- blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. That is our Christian life. That is the testimony that comes as a result of our spiritual growth. And people watch us, people in your family, people you work with, people you know that are not believers know you're a Christian and they watch you. And so we have a visible uh, testimony. And we're able to um, stand fast and to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation by holding fast to the word of life to the word of God so that and then Paul says why so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ Paul's looking he says I'm looking forward to the fight we're all there at the judgment seat of Christ and I'm going to be there and the you Philippians you're con- as a congregation are going to be there and 
I don't want to be ashamed when you're evaluated in terms of your Christian life. I want to rejoice at the day of Christ as you are rewarded for your faithfulness and for your service to the Lord and for the fact that you have held on to the Word of God. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about light and love, I mean light and life, that at positionally when we were saved, we were transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son from the domain of darkness. And so other scripture talks about the fact, like um, Ephesians 5, 8, that our new legal position is that we were adopted into God's royal family. We are light. So that I had about 18 points of, of, on this last lesson. This is the 16th point, that our legal position is that we are adopted into the royal family of God. Ephesians 5.8 says, you were once darkness. See, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. That's our positional reality. Then we have the command, walk or live or how you, how you think, how you act, how you conduct yourselves, how you talk is like children of light. So the position is we are light, but a lot of times we don't live as if we're children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. That's our position. But in our experience, this was the 17th point, we walk or think, talk, live either in the light or in darkness. In 1 John 1, five through 7, John is talking. He says at the end of verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness is completely done away with by light. First John 1 John 1.6, he says, if we say or if we make a claim that we have fellowship, that we're enjoying fellowship with God, and we walk in darkness, our life, how we think, how we act, how we talk is in darkness. We're walking like we are still in darkness, a child of the darkness, then we lie. Basically, you've got two options. You're either going to walk in terms of the light of God's word, or you're going to walk and live in, the, in darkness. Those are the only two options. Walking in darkness is the same as paganism, human viewpoint, other terms I've used. Walking in the light is walking according to Scripture, thinking according to Scripture, acting according to Scripture in light of our new position in Christ. Verse 7, Paul says, if we walk in the, I mean, John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We enjoy fellowship with one another. You're not in fellowship or out of fellowship. Those, those terms indicate something very passive and static. It is having it. It's enjoying it. It is participating in it. Fellowship is a participatory partnership. It is not a static position. So we, don't, we enjoy fellowship. It's like you go to a Christmas party. And outside, it's snowing, and it's cold, and it's dark. The clouds cover the moon, and you're in the darkness. But if you are go inside, you're in the light, and there's having a party, and everybody's enjoying it. Everybody's enjoying their relationship with one another. But then if you commit some social discretion, you're kicked out the front door. You have to confess your sin, 
And then you can get back into the party where the light is, where the life is, and where to stay inside, not outside. Staying inside is what the Bible says. It's abiding in Christ. It's staying in that position where you're enjoying that partnership and, and fellowship. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness. That's our position as unbelievers. But now you are light in the Lord. That's our new identity. Walk as children of light. That implies that we can walk as children of darkness. So 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It means you're, you're living like an unbeliever. In the 18th point, I said we're not to partner. That means to have fellowship, enjoy that fellowship with the works of darkness. We are to expose them. That's Ephesians 5, 11 through 13. That's the same thing as being a light in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation in Philippians. They're just using different language to get our attention. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, you are, light, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, remember, the lamp that they have didn't have a three-way switch, and you could turn it up to 150 watts or whatever. They didn't have that. They had one of those little clay oil lamps that had olive oil in it and a wick, and you would light that, and it would burn, and it otherwise you're in pitch blackness, and you couldn't find a flashlight. You had to be able to light that lamp, and it would illuminate everything. So in our passage now, it talks about this motivation of the day of Christ, uh, that one day we're going to be evaluated. And Paul says, I want to rejoice when I hear your report card, when I hear your evaluation. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the day of Christ. Now, I've added a bunch of new material to this. Now, when we talk about rewards, we talk about the day of Christ. Not everybody understands why we talk about it and how understands our interpretation of these events. And there are some people who think, well, everybody gets the same thing. Everybody's going to enter into heaven. We're going to have all the same rewards, all the same everything. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. But to understand what the New Testament teaches about anything... To understand what it, not only what it teaches about rewards, but also what it teaches about redemption, propitiation, cleansing, forgiveness, sacrifice, offerings, law, holiness, sanctification, love of God. All of these things have their background in the Old Testament. I know you all understand that. But did you know that the vast majority of Christians, instead of interpreting the uh, New Testament in light of the Old Testament as the foundation, they believe you interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And what that means for them is that, for example, when God promised Moses a piece of land, real land, real estate, physical property, that was bordered by the river Euphrates 
and the Wadi, the river of Egypt, the um, down in the southwestern part, south of the Golan Heights, and the Mediterranean Sea over to the Euphrates. All of that was going to be give, was part of that land package. The Jews have never owned all of that. Abraham didn't own any of it except for the burial site at the cave of Machpelah. That was where he buried Sarah and where he eventually was buried. But God promised them land, okay? So we begin by looking at these Old Testament passages in order to provide background and the foundation for understanding uh, what is taught in the New Testament. Because the other side is going to come along and say, well, when we get to the New Testament, we realize that our destiny is heaven, not physical property. And so that's really what God meant by the land in the Old Testament. Well, wait a minute. If God used literal language in the Abrahamic covenant of a literal piece of land with specific borders, and you come along and say, oh, by the time we get to the New Testament, what we find out is what God really meant was heaven, then God was lying. You're saying God's a liar and that he changed the terms of the covenant. And that's exactly what they do. That's how they get away with saying that we now, because it's not literal land, the Jews today don't have a right to the land, uh, their historic homeland. Uh, that now should go to the uh, Arabs and the so-called Palestinians. I prefer just to call them Arabs. So in amillennialism, and that's what we have in that system, because they believe that there is no literal 1,000-year messianic kingdom in the future. We are now in the kingdom. And you hear all kinds of people talking about, well, let's do this for the kingdom, let's do that for the kingdom. No, we're doing it for the church, for Christ. For the, we are the bride of Christ. We are doing it for the Christ, the head of the church, we're not motivated today by the kingdom other than we're going to eventually rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. And so that's, that's a long-term destiny. Uh, we live today in light of eternity, and where we're going to be in the millennial kingdom is going to be determined by how we live our spiritual life today. So in amillennialism, where there's no f- literal future kingdom, only a present spiritualized kingdom, the New Testament becomes the basis for interpreting the Old Testament. But that destroys the reality of the promises that God made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And, and the end result is it makes God to be a liar. In Hebrews eleven eight through 10, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. That word inheritance means possession. It's a key word in studying the whole doctrine of rewards and inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. If God came to you today and said, I want you to leave and pack up all your bags and go where I'm going to show you, are you going to say, Lord, do I need warm clothes or cold weather clothes how am i how am i going to get there how much money do i need to take with me abraham just said yes lord and packed what he had and went out not knowing where he was going by faith he dwelt in the land of promise when he eventually got there 
Notice it's still called the land of promise when Abraham was there because he only realized ownership of the cave of Machpelah. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. See, the term heirs is related to inheritance. All of this is related to the rewards that we get. That's tied to, those words are tied together. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he never saw the realization of the promise that God made to him, but he believed it. And he will realize it because he will be raised from the dead, and then he will be in the land that God promised him. So in terms of an introduction, we must understand a little bit about terminology. The day of Christ is different from the day of the Lord. First of all, the day of the Lord describes a time of judgment. A couple of times it's used to describe judgments in the Old Testament on Israel, but a large number of its uses describe the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's wrath, the time of the tribulation. And there's a lot of debate about dispensationalists about how narrow or broad the term is, I tend to think that it's a more narrow use of the events immediately preceding the battle and campaign of Armageddon and the Armageddon itself and the return of Christ. And so that's, that's, I believe, the primary meaning. The day of Christ, though, is different. It is immediately after Christ returns in the clouds and takes the saints to heaven to be with him the church age saints. So in immediately following that, we have the judgment seat of Christ. It's an evaluation. Now, we go from an environment bound by time to an environment that is timeless. So even though in, um, in, heavenly, t- clock, in a heavenly clock, we, it may take thousands of years, in an earthly clock, it's about five seconds and the rewards, and and everything takes place. So people say, well, that's going to take more than seven years. Not if you're in heaven, okay? Different different clock. So the the day of Christ occurs immediately following the rapture of the church before the tribulation. Third, this focus of the day of the Lord, I I mistyped that, that, Focus of the day of Christ. Got to fix that, Barb. The focus of the day of Christ is rewards. There's going to be some who lose rewards, but God wants to reward us. He's not a you know He's not this big meanie up there saying, "I want to see how many people I can give a failing grade to." He's trying to do what the best he can. Just look at how God evaluates a fallen sinners who are believers and trust in him in Hebrews 11. Samson's there. Samson didn't do anything right till right at the end. He's a womanizer. He abused his parents. He, he, he lies. He, he violated his oath every time he got a chance to violate the oath. Uh, Gideon's there. Gideon, Gideon tried to do everything he could to avoid doing what God told him to do. Barak is there, and he hid behind Deborah's skirts. I mean, these are not the the great heroes you might think they are, except at one critical time in their life, they trusted God and stood their ground. And for that, God praises them in Hebrews 11. 
So, so I think when we're at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to all be a little bit surprised at, at the rewards that we get. Second is that rewards are mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. The words that are used indicate a payment or a recompense for work that is done. In other words, faithfulness. Salvation, remember, is a free gift. We don't work to earn it. But rewards are distributed on the basis of performance, on the basis of work done. Uh, and for our faithfulness, I remember in the first edition of John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, he translated Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. He got slammed for that. And in the second edition, he changed it. But, but he, was, he, was, he was really criticized for that because that's not what the word means. But see, that's what lordship salvation ultimately believes is that we're saved by our faithfulness. So perseverance is what saves us. If we don't persevere, then, then we probably weren't saved to begin with. So you better persevere. Rewards are a payment or a recompense for work that is done or faithfulness. Look at the language. Genesis 15, 1. Uh, Genesis 15.1, again talking about Abraham, who we just mentioned in Hebrews 11. Uh, we're told, after these things, after what things? After the events of chapter, chapter 14, which dealt with the um, lords, of, uh, uh, the five kings of Mesopotamia that came and attacked uh, five kings in the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other places. After those things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So here's how we, we learn this. We don't always know how God communicated, but he communicated to Abram in a vision and said, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So this is the first time we see reward in the Old Testament. It's this word in the Hebrew it is sakar, which means wages for work, reward that God gives, or payment for something. BDB, that's one of the, uh, also one of the, but an older Hebrew lexicon, defines it as wages of a servant, reward for work that is done. Now, I think this is really an important statement. Uh, for the, the, I'm going to get in the weeds a minute here because this is a passage of debate, but it really hit me as I was going back and developing this study in the last couple of weeks that so when we get into this chapter, this is the foundational chapter for understanding justification in the Old Testament, Genesis 15:6. Genesis 15:6 we read and he referring to Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it, it to him for righteousness. Now you see what happens when we read that we read that as if uh the issue in between verse 1 and verse 6 has to do with whether or not uh Abram's solution to his childlessness is viable. And Abram comes up to God and says I got a great idea. We can't have kids. We'll just adopt Eliezer. He's our servant. 
and he'll be our heir. See, I've solved your problem, God. You couldn't solve it. It's difficult to make old people have babies, and I've got it all solved for you. And God's just shaking his head, and um, and God says no. He says, this one will not be your heir, verse 4, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. That is, God brought Abraham out. Let's go outside for a minute. The stars are out. Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. He told him, you're going you're gonna to make a baby. And through that baby, you're going to have so many descendants, you can't count them all. That's God's promise. Now, verse 6 says, and he believed in the Lord. So it sounds like what he's saying is God, he, he believed God's promise. But that's not what it does in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, you have basically two, tense, two, 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 um, two tenses. You have a perfect tense and an imperfect tense. And you can do different things with them based on context. But the imperfect tense with an and in the front of it, in the Hebrew it's a vav consecutive, is how you tell a story. And the way the story would be told using, and I'll exaggerate it, um, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and said this, and then Abram said... And then verse 3, and then Abram said, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, and all of these verbs are in, a, in an imperfect tense. It's, and he did this, and he did that, and he did this. That's why you read that and he or and she so often in, in reading the Bible, is that's how the Hebrew is written. But you, so you have imperfect verb, imperfect verb, imperfect verb, all the way through those first five verses. But in verse 6 it says, and he believed. And it's not an imperfect tense. It's a perfect tense. That breaks the action. That tells you this isn't in the flow of this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It stops at the end of verse 5 and says, and what it's emphasizing is Remember, Abraham had already believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It's a parenthetical statement to remind the reader that Abraham had early. Otherwise, you've got God coming to Abraham in chapter uh, chapter 12, promising land, seed, and blessing, and he's not a believer. You get into what God does for him in chapter 14 and uh, chapter 13, rather, and then in chapter 14. And he's not a believer until you get to Genesis 15, 6. And that's all wrong. You've got to understand Hebrew grammar. And when you want to, when the writer would break, remember, they didn't have punctuation, all these things that we use today. So they did it with grammar. So he's reminding you, remember, Abram had already believed God and it was, Abraham was justified before Genesis 15, I mean, Genesis 12, 1. Abram had been a believer probably for 15, 20, maybe 30 years before Genesis 12, 1. And now God is rewarding him. 
That's what it said in 15.1. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He's already saved and he's been faithful. So now God is going to reward him. And there's a very uh, well done article, I believe it was by George Mendenhall, that came out back in the 40s or 50s that said, what we have in the Abrahamic covenant is a royal grant. In the ancient world, you would have, for example, if a king conquered a neighboring country, he would give a contract, covenant, to the leader. And that would be, if you obey me and you do everything I want you to do as my client king, then I'm going to do these things for you. And if you disobey me, then I'm going to punish you with these other things. That's basically the format of the Mosaic Covenant. But a royal grant covenant was a reward. You've been a good subject. You've been above and beyond any other subject. And now I'm going to give you something in addition to everything else I promised. That's what a royal grant covenant was. And that's what the Abrahamic covenant was. It was a reward. It was a payment or recompense for Abram's faithfulness. You see the same thing in Ruth 2.12, where you have the blessing, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. She's already a believer, but she's been faithful and dependent upon the Lord, and so this blessing is pronounced upon her that may God reward you for this. Second Chronicles 15.7 uh, this is in the context of um, uh, Azariah the prophet, and he is speaking to Asa the king, who was one of the good kings of Judah, and challenging him to be remain faithful to the Lord and continue his work of destroying the idols in the land. And the result it was that Abraham, I mean Asa, took courage, and he continued and destroyed the idols that were in the land. So uh, uh, Azariah says to Asa, but you be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. You will be given additional blessing. That's where the reward is. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. This is really talking about, it's messianic. It's talking about Uh, the Messiah coming at the end of the tribulation, that's the same thing that's said in the New Testament. He'll come and his reward will be with him. That's what's said in Revelations. 2 Samuel 22, 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. See, that's not salvation. That is a blessing beyond salvation on the basis of performance, on the basis of faithfulness. According to the cleanness of my hands, David said, he has recompensed me. This isn't a work salvation. This is obedience. God rewards us for our obedience. Psalm 19.11 reads, Moreover, by them, that is by the law, by the words of the law, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is what? Great reward. Reward is, comes as a result of doing God's word, keeping his word. The word translated reward has the idea of the consequence. There's great consequences if you're obedient to the Lord. And because of that, you will be rewarded. Now, when we get into the New Testament, this is the third point. When we get into the New Testament, we have three other words that are used here. 
that are very helpful to understand things. First of all, you have the word misthos, and this refers to wages or reward or recompense for something that you've done. It's, that's not grace. Grace is giving you something that you haven't done nothing for. So this is something you've worked for. The second word is a word we'll see in a minute, antipodosis, which also means a repayment or a reward. And then the last word's a fun word, miros, a portion or share of an inheritance. It could be translated with the word part or share, and we'll see that in a minute. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his already saved disciples. They're not unbelievers except for one. They're already saved. And he's talking to them about rewards for obedience. In Matthew 5.11, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You'll be rewarded by handling that because you handled that well. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's an example of the use of misthos, a reward. A second passage that is found there that I don't have on the screen is um, Matthew 6, 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, that passage really came home to me. I've been in churches where they will set a big bucket down in front of the pulpit and everybody files down and puts their offering in there i was at one that where the the very pretty conservative pastor was up there and he said okay we're going to take up the offering now i've got two brand new two hundred dollar bills here and i'm going to sweeten the pot with that everybody else who wants to match my two hundred dollars let's come forward and put that in the pot and he went from 200 to 150 to uh, 120, to 100, to 75, to 50, he went all the way down. Now, until he got to about 15, they said, now, I know the rest of you just don't have anything. In the middle of it, my favorite line says, look at your shoes, how much did they cost? Isn't Jesus worth at least that? See, this is, this is doing your giving to be seen by men. It has no reward. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus said, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In the parable of the prodigal son, this is a great episode, and it's important to understand, and this is dealing with the word meros. Remember, I said it refers to a part or share in an inheritance. So in Luke fifteen twelve, the preceding verse said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, we all know the story that he wanted to get his inheritance and leave and just go squander it on, on all the lusts of the flesh, and he ends up spending all of his money and he's eat, eating the leftovers in a pigsty. Finally, he, he kind of looks up to heaven and says, 
It was a little better at home. I think I better go back to my dad. And he goes back and his dad forgave him. Had he wasted his inheritance? Yes. Was it still there for him to spend? No. But he was still his son. So the portion here refers to that share of the inheritance. Now, John chapter 13 is when Jesus addresses the disciples about this, that what's important, notice in this passage, what is important in order to participate in the share or in the inheritance. I'll never forget when I learned this, because I didn't realize this. Probably had heard it, but didn't didn't get into my head. I was... uh, flying to Kazakhstan. Just before I left, Lagos Bible Software had come out with this new program of uh, pre-publication. So they hadn't any really heavy Greek tools, and they said, we want to know how many people would would spend maybe $75 to buy Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And if you're willing to do that and pay us up front, make a commitment, give us your credit card information, then we'll go ahead and publish it. And within five days, they had enough people who had signed up, made a commitment to get it. And so it came out. And that was the start of their whole pre-pub offer thing that's been going on now for about 23 years. And it's been great. Um, And so it was Kittle. So I got that like the day before we left to go to Kazakhstan. So on the airplane, I'm looking at it, and and it turns out one of the first words I looked at was miros, and it starts talking about this is a share or portion in the inheritance. And I went, wow, I had no idea. I'll bring come back to that in a minute. So this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the feast of Passover. He's having his Seder meal with his disciples. We've gone over this many, many times. But it's interesting the emphasis that's at the first two verses. This is a summary that John is writing. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his time was up and that he was going to depart from the world to to the Father. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a verb agapao. Then in the next verse it says, In contrast, and supper being ready, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's another theme in this chapter. The first theme is really all about love. The second is that verse, that Judas is going to be uh, removed from the company of the disciples in this chapter. But at the end of this discourse in the upper room... Jesus concludes in, at the end of the chapter, you know, 32, 33 verses later, saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is a literary device called an inclusio. If you were in the Navy and you had artillery practice or you were in the Army and know anything about artillery, they used to do bracketing before GPS. And so they would fire the first round knowing that it would go short. 
They would fire the second round. It would go long. Now they've measured where the target is. And the third round would hit the target. What you have in a literary inclusio is something stated at the beginning and something stated with the same vocabulary at the end, and that makes the whole section one one unit, one entity. And it's all about what these key words are. So what Jesus is talking about in John 13 is love. I've heard people who give sermons on the fact that this was about being a servant, only in an extended extended imaginative way it's about love but the word love is not mentioned between verse 1 and verse 34 so jesus we're told by john says jesus because he knew that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from god and was going to god jesus knew two things while he was sitting there He knew the Father had given everything into his hands. That's his authority that's been uh, given to him. And second thing, that he had come from God and he was going to God. So he has to teach him something because he's getting ready to leave. And so in uh, in the upper room discourse, he's having to teach the disciples about the spiritual life that's going to come. So that's John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and then he begins to wash their feet. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, you're going to watch two words in this section, wash and bathe. They represent two different Greek words, and it's very important. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, if you've ever walked around the streets of Jerusalem, even today, uh, it's pretty, it can get pretty dirty because there's a lot of, of dirt and gravel and, and dust. And so if all you're wearing is sandals, you're going to come in the house and your feet are going to be pretty, pretty messy. And so you'd need to wash your feet before you went on into the house. So they would wash their their feet. But this is, Jesus is going to assign this. It's going to picture something, but it's not picturing being a servant. The word for wash is nipto. Nipto means to wash a part of something. So if you're going to wash behind your ears, or you're going to wash your back, or you're going to wash your hands, or you're going to wash your feet, you can wash your face. You'll use the word nipto. And it's in contrast to another word we'll see that means to take a full bath. So here it's very particular. He begins to just wash their feet. That's the correct word to use to wipe them down. Verse 6, he comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, you're washing my feet? Point is, Peter's offended. Lord, you're not supposed to wash my feet. He uses that same word, nipto. Verse 7, Jesus says to him, in my, my paraphrase, Look, buddy, you don't understand what I'm doing here. It's got significant doctrinal teaching points, but you don't get it. Don't worry about it. You will get it. That's what he's saying. What I'm doing now, you don't understand now, but you will know after this. So Jesus is saying, I'm teaching something through my actions. So Peter says, offended, you will never wash my feet, still using the word nipto. And Jesus says, this is the key verse. 
If I don't wash you, you, you have no part with me. Now, there are some denominations that take this literally, and they do foot washing every Sunday. And if we don't wash each other's feet, then we're not going to have part. They don't understand what's going on here. Jesus is teaching something, and you have to have an Old Testament background to get it. So what Jesus says to him is not that you have no part with me. We hear that word and we think of like a role in a play or a role in a TV show or a role in something. And that's sort of the idea. But it's that word meros. It means you don't have an inheritance, a share in the inheritance unless you let me do this. So that means that Jesus washing the disciples' feet is a prerequisite to being able to have these additional rewards. That's that same word that's used in Luke fifteen twelve when the when the prodigal son comes and asks for the his inheritance. Now it didn't. It's he's not asking for you know he, he doesn't lose his birth position as the as a family member or as the son of the of the father, but he will waste his inheritance. John thirteen nine, Peter says, "Oh Lord, if that's the case, then don't don't just wash my feet, but also my hands and my head. Give me a bath." And Jesus said to him, "He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean." There he says, "And y'all are clean." He uses the plural, meaning all of the disciples except one. He says, and y'all are clean, but not all of you. So let's see the Greek here. He says, Jesus says over here, he who is bathed, this is luo. He who is washed completely, that is positional truth. That's what happens the instant we're saved. We are washed completely of our sins. We are positionally clean at that point. So he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, nipto. That once you have been washed completely, you're positionally clean, but there needs to be a regular cleansing process experientially because you're going to go out in the streets and you're going to go places you shouldn't go and you're going to do things you shouldn't do, and so you need to come back and wash your feet. He only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. That's the word katharos. The verb is katharizo. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to katharizo, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus, Jesus is d- depicting this. When we're saved, we're bathed completely, but we go out and we sin, and then we need to come back and confess our sins so that we are cleansed from our sins. And he's telling Peter that if you don't get your sins forgiven regularly, and a lot of people are never taught to confess their sin, then you're going to go and you're never going to have any kind of production that's rewardable. In Exodus 29.4, we see the Old Testament example. When Aaron and his sons were ordained as priests, they would bring to the door of the meeting and they would be washed with water. And the word there in the Hebrew is rachatz. Now in Hebrew, rachatz can mean either a complete washing or a partial washing. But when the rabbis who understood the issues 
translated this verse into Greek in the Septuagint, they use the word luo here, which means to bathe or wash completely. So Aaron and his sons, when they were ordained that initial time, they're washed completely, but not again ritually. They would come in, and there'd be the laver there going into the tabernacle, and they'd wash their hands and their feet. In Exodus 30, verse 18, God told them, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. This was translated in the Septuagint with the word nipto, because you're only washing your hands or your feet. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water. And this is what has continued to be talked about in verse, uh, Exodus 30, verse 20. They shall wash with water lest they die. So we come to Exodus 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year. It's talking about the Day of Atonement, where once a year they would uh, sacrifice the two goats and they would come in and put the blood on the altar. It would make atonement. Now, the English word atonement is a made-up word. It means at one moment. When, when you go back to Wycliffe and these others that are trying to translate the Bible into English, they didn't have a word that they felt really fit the Hebrew word kafar, so they just made one up. It's, it, they thought it had the idea of reconciliation, so they made this word at one moment, became atonement. And so this is done once a year. Now look at this. I color-coded this for you. See, the, the sort of pinkish-purple atonement is, goes to the, the pinkish-purple block, ex hilaskomai. That means to propitiate. So Aaron shall make atonement, and here the Greek word they used was hilaskomai, upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. But here it's katharismos. Katharizo, remember, means to become clean, to be cleansed. Katharismos means clean, to, to clean, cleansing or purification. And once a year he shall make atonement. And here it's katharizo, the verb. So you have three uses of the English word atonement, and they, the one English word translates three different Greek words even though two of them are closely related, is noun and verb. John thirteen ten, Jesus says to Peter, He who is bathed, fully bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So bathed is luo. That's when you are, I kept messing with this today, and I got it backwards. Oh, yeah, you wash your feet, and you're completely clean. That's experientially clean. But that is, should be, I got that red and the blue switched. That should be katharos. That means your position, your, no, wait a minute. Completely clean, that's luo. Because, uh, and then here it's, but you are clean, and that's katharos. You are clean, but not all of you. In other words, y'all are clean, but not every one of you. One of you is not clean yet, not a believer. John thirteen eleven. Paul, uh, John's writing this. He inserts this explanation. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. This is positional cleansing. 
Every believer is positionally clean at the instant of faith in Christ. John thirteen eleven, Judas was not clean. He was not positionally clean because he was not a believer. So in verse 12 we read, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said, You know what I've done for you? This is your quiz at the end of the lesson. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What did the washing of the feet represent? This is your quiz. What did that represent? Cleansing from sin, forgiveness. Jesus is saying you need to forgive one another. Judas was not forgiven positionally. Y'all need to forgive one another. Well, wait a minute, Robbie. I thought you said at the beginning that this was about love. You can't love someone if you're not going to forgive them. Forgiveness is at the core of love. This is why he concludes it, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And he tells them in John 13, 14, and 15 that you ought to wash one another's feet. He doesn't mean that literally. He's saying you need to forgive one another. And I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So in John 13, 12 to 14, he's emphasizing that this forgiveness. The washing of the feet is a symbol for forgiveness. And so he's basically saying, if I forgive your sins, then you also ought to forgive one another's sins. All right. So Jesus is saying, number one, that we're to love one another. Second, a central part of loving one another is to forgive one another. Third, if we aren't letting God forgive or cleanse us, 1 John 1, 9, then we jeopardize our share or our part of the inheritance. So loving one another involves us being forgiven by the Father uh, through forgiveness by God, and then we forgive others. Jesus taught spiritual failures jeopardize rewards. This is where we'll conclude He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward. You can do the right thing the wrong way, and it jeopardizes your reward. So the conclusion that we have here is that salvation is a free gift, but rewards are additional blessings for eternity, blessings based upon our spiritual growth, our service to the Lord, our faithfulness. It's not based on what we, on sins. It's based on the positive of what we have done, what we have allowed God to do through us by walking by the Spirit. And that's what we'll start to get into next week to show that in all of these passages, when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, You have two types of believers, those who are rewarded and those who have, according to 1 Corinthians 3, their works burned up, yet it's through fire, but they're saved. In the illustration of running the race in 1 Corinthians 9, you have the ones who win the race and get the Stephanos crown, the reward, and those who are disqualified. 
So going into, into the eternal state after the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have two types of believers. But they all have, as we've studied, the, they're all heirs of God. But they're distinctions based upon lack of rewards or rewards or based upon our, our performance. So we'll come back and look at the details of that next Thursday night. Continuity, how about that? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things so we might be challenged. We live to, need to live today in light of eternity, uh, live today in light of the fact that, yes, there will be a time of accountability. The focal point is not on exposing sin, but in exposing what we've done well. And on the basis of what we've done well, walking by the Spirit, letting you work in us to work out our, our deliverance through your production, then there will be rewards. And so, Father, we pray that we might be faithful, that we might stand fast, that we might keep short accounts in terms of confession of sin, and that we might realize this, the importance of the uh, eternal consequences of our life here and how we use our time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.